Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 345, and today we are talking to John Younger, PhD. So John is a prolific writer. He's a contributor to Forbes and Harvard Business Review. He is a HR thought leader, author, advisor, board member, and early stage investor in HR tech startups. It's a fascinating conversation with John. He is an expert in the freelance situation, the freelance economy, the freelance workers. Uh, and connected to this is, of course, the gig workers. Uh, and loosely connected is the new remote work movement. So it's a fascinating conversation that I had with John. I wanted to get him on the podcast to discuss how all of these things, you know, remote and freelance and outsourcing and offshore and globalized workforce all connect together. So it was a great conversation uh, and I really enjoyed it and learned a lot and I hope you do also. As always, if you want any of the show notes for this conversation, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you're already outsourcing, about to start, or somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your outsourcing practices. We list over 700 outsourcing suppliers on our website, host this leading outsourcing podcast, and have over 5,000 pages of content. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. We offer everything from light brokerage, co-managed services, through to fully managed solutions. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Mention that you're a podcast listener and we will give you special attention plus a 10% discount. This is for a limited time only. Go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Okay. Hi and welcome back everybody. Today I'm joined by John Younger. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. John, I want to start by um, starting the podcast by, you know, what is freelancing? Sure. It's a great question. And, and, and let me give you a little bit of background, if I, if I may, some historical background. Um, the, the, the first evidence of, of freelancing that I'm aware of were the, um, the Greek soldiers who uh, decided to join Cyrus's Persian army. Um, I think that was around 700 B.C. Uh, to fill in his uh, ranks. The next story that I know about freelancing is uh, 300 B.C. And the Romans uh, used contract architects and construction engineers to build their largest and most extraordinary buildings. And more recently, freelancing as a phrase refers to the available sword or lance of the second son of a nobleman who didn't get to keep the property, but rather, but rather uh, was, uh, was a sword for hire for other nobles that lacked 
an army. So we've been around freelancing for quite some time, at, at least 3,000 years that I'm aware of. And what it really comes down to um, is kind of a combination of two very different things that tend to be joined together inappropriately. The first one we talk about freelancers, at least when, when I talk about freelancers, I refer to independent professionals, highly certified, highly qualified, chosen to apply their trade, not as a full-time employee, but as an independent, available contractor, consultant, whatever you'd like to call it. And we see those, those, those kinds of professions growing ex extraordinarily, exponentially, and including not only technology, but also now airline pilots, uh, music musicians, um, tremendous numbers of different categories of folks that are now operating as, as independent professionals. There's a second category that we sometimes conflate, and that's gigsters. Gigsters are different from freelancers because they are trying to cobble together a living. They don't have specific qualifications for a particular profession, though they may be very good at dog walking or construction or any number of other things. Their focus is not plying a career but rather organizing their finances so that they can live their life and doing so by putting together in, in typically several different kinds of work. So on the one hand, freelancer, independent professional, highly qualified, highly certified, working in their field, and the other gigster trying to cobble together a, a reasonable living to put bread on the table. Thanks, John. I mean, it's an incredible insight and you know i think it's fascinating that there's there's a lot of attribution for the gig economy and freelancing to the kind of modern environment and you know often it's attributed to silicon valley but you know as you've explained like it goes back many dozens of centuries prior to silicon valley so they're not they're not all to blame for this necessarily but <laughs> as you say as well you know we're i got you on the show because outsourcing obviously we talk a lot about outsourcing on the show and then there is the rise of remote work. It seems that freelancing is really on the rise as well now. And, you know, ultimately all of this is under the N umbrella of employment. And it's the varying shades of employment and work, isn't it? And, you know, obviously work is as old as time itself. Exactly. But how we structure that work and how we have the deal or arrangement between the workers and the employers, I suppose, is under question here. Um you so just introduce yourself if you don't mind, John. You sure. are a PhD in this area, and you're very you know prolific um, writer on the subject. So I'd love to hear more about your involvement in freelancing. Absolutely, uh, and and uh, if I may, I'll tell you a little bit of story, and, and that is, I had the privilege of um, helping to create and then take public a couple of companies, and uh, in in 2012 2013. I had retired from my second consultancy um, and was doing a little bit of independent work as a freelancer. One of those projects was uh, working for a very large global uh, pharmaceutical distributor. A and the, the, the topic was help us to, to assess HR and begin to build a strategy going forward for a new time and a new day. And when we sat down together to talk about the initial results, the head of HR, who was also the head of marketing, said, um, what have you learned that would surprise us? And, and what I said was, 
You know, that's a very, very interesting question. In fact, what's most interesting from our research was that we found out that 30% of the people that work for your company are not full-time employees. They are what they call freelancers, and they're operating in a variety of areas, in data analysis, in tech, in compliance, and in several other areas. What's frustrating is your organization doesn't seem to understand the important contribution they're making, doesn't seem to respect them, and they don't feel appreciated. And, and that seems like you're creating a difficult situation. If you're dependent on 30% of, for this, of this population for your workforce, you need to treat them in a very different way. You need to treat them as volunteers. You need to treat them with respect. You need to treat them with courtesy. You need to pay them fairly and make them feel a part of the team while they're there, and you're not doing that. Well, that was the first experience that I had, and it led to a tremendous interest on the part of what other organizations were doing about these people who we called freelancers. And it led to a book in 2016 called Agile Talent. And what we tried to say in that book was that it's getting tougher and tougher to find great talent, whether that talent is full-time or freelance. And for many organizations, you're not really in a position to attract them. Full-time, great full-time people, you're not really in a position uh, to pay some of these extraordinary people what they need to be paid to be hired full-time. But you have a new source of support in freelancing where you can pay on demand, that is to say, for as much as you need. And what that means for the freelancer is I've become fractionalized. Rather than spending 100% of my time on one company, I'm able to spend a smaller percentage of my time on several different companies. And the consequence of that is that companies that wouldn't be able to hire me, wouldn't be able to attract me on a full-time basis, can hire me, can benefit from my work on a project basis. Well, what that does is extraordinarily open up the aperture for many companies to have a level of talent, a level of expertise that they couldn't have otherwise. It is an extraordinary gift to a large connection of companies. And by the way, what it also does is it's an extraordinary gift to those individuals that are interested in a variety of projects, working with a variety of clients, and have the flexibility to choose when they want to work and when they don't. That's what this provides for the clients and what it provides for the freelancer. The whole, you know, ultimately, this is these are all different shades of employment. And it seems that the jury is out, really, in terms of what is better. You know, is it better? And it seems you know, the American landscape is, is very polarized in that, you know, you hear the narrative of it's all about the employees, it's all about culture, and especially this is super strong in Silicon Valley and, and you know, the new breed of startups. It's all about your people and, and very sort of kumbaya almost. Yet then so much of the employment landscape is quite cutthroat. You know, it's, it's paid by the hour. There's very low sort of uh, rights of tenure as employees, you know, and, and everything is very transactional down to the hour and they owe you nothing beyond that hour. Where is the balance there? And is there, do you think, an ideal for employment or does it really vary depending on the requirements of both the employers and the employees? You know, I... I, I have a different perspective on it, and, and I'm sure that the reality is somewhere in between. 
But my perspective on it is that freelancing is a solution responding to a problem. And the problem is different in different parts of the world. In, in Europe right now, the problem is companies don't want to hire individuals full-time if they can avoid it because the requirements of letting go of employees in Europe are so obnoxious, they're so difficult, that uh, it makes more sense to think in terms of uh, consultants working on a project basis, technology people working on a project basis, or um, thinking in terms of management on an interim basis. And we know that there's a very large interim management practice where people are free, who are freelancers may work for three months, six months, nine months, taking the position of a manager within an organization. That's a response to a problem. The problem is the lack of flexibility within those organizations because of the rules in Europe. Take the US, and it's a different circumstance. There's tremendous flexibility in terms of bringing people on, bringing people off. But what we know is that many companies simply aren't able to, to, to attract the talent they need on a full-time basis. Well, at the same time, there's tremendous numbers of people in the U.S. that want more flexibility. What we know about meaningful work is that there are three dimensions that are particularly important. Happy people, happy professionals from a, from a career perspective feel as though they have autonomy, feel as though they have agency, and feel as though they are able to affiliate with a group that is important to them. If you think about the freelancers in the US, well, that's kind of what's led to the growth of freelancing on the, on the professional side. I want more autonomy, more flexibility. I want more impact or agency. And I want to feel more of a part of the organization or the team or the community that I'm with. Many organizations haven't been able to provide that on a full-time basis in the U.S. They haven't been able to do that because uh, they have a transactional relationship with their employees. They may not be able to do it because, excuse me, uh, the, there's a, a strategy change that's causing a tremendous disruption in the organization, or they may not be able to do it because employees are just so frustrated that the average gap in income between the top and the bottom that used to be seven times is now 200 times. And there's a sense of inequity that's pervasive. And so for many folks, they've said, I don't want to be part of that part of the economy. I'd rather be a solopreneur or part of an agency or part of a community in the area of tech or the area of consulting or the area of, of creatives, et cetera. And, and that has made an awful lot of people so much happier than they were as employees. And by the way, just as successful from an economic point of view as they were as employees. So I think the different, different parts of the world at different times have different um, sanctions, if we may call it that, that make it possible for freelancing to either grow or shrink within that area. As we see in business and in life and in society generally, you see a lot of innovation and the theory is that you know innovation will lead to improvements and refinements and progression, a positive progression. Do you see that this changing employment landscape 
and the nature of employment and the flexibility of employment is leading to a generalized improvement? Or do you see that it's, you know, potentially crumbling the foundations of, of society? Yeah, I, I, I'd go with, I, I'd go with uh, um, the A rather than the B version. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let me give you just a, a couple of data points. Data point one is we've never seen more startups than we saw last year. If you take a look at 2020, which is by many sort of measures about as awful a year as we can imagine, there were more startups that year than there have ever been before in recorded history, recorded economic history. Well more than 150 different startups and literally hundreds of billions of dollars placed against those startups. So in terms of economic activity, we're seeing a boom as opposed to a bust. The second part of that is that we're seeing as a result of the combination of freelancing and remote, we're seeing a reemergence of secondary cities all over the world. What we saw was the, 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 how would I say this? We've seen cities like Tulsa, Oklahoma, like Burlington, Vermont, like Albany, New York, which used to be very important cities, have been hollowed out by a difficult economic time. And now what we're, what we're noticing is that people are returning to their home cities, but returning with higher pay using technical roles on, a, on, a re, on either a freelance or a remote basis, providing tremendous value to those communities. In addition to that, we're seeing tremendous growth internationally. I mean, we're, we're seeing the outcome of freelancing felt in Vietnam, where there's a large freelancing community, in Indonesia, where there's a large freelancing community. Australia has done wonderfully in that area. We're seeing more and more, even in, in Cambodia, Myanmar, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what we're, what we're noticing is a, a global trend towards prosperity, in part supported by the flexibility that people have given technology, given remote work willingness, and given the trend towards freelancing and solopreneurship. For me, it's a very positive time. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so important to see that, isn't it? Because I think, you know, as there is progress, people, some people are left out and some people get the, the wrong end of the stick when it comes to development and progress. But Overall, if there's a sort of uh, a, an improvement and a continued improvement, then you know it is it is better for society. Now, let me hope. let me add to that because I think you you've made an important point. But there's also an obligation on the individual, and that is that while there's a rising tide that lifts all boats, it, it doesn't lift them equally. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. what what does the boatsman need to do to be part of the rising tide? And, and the answer is. That what we know is that a significant percentage of jobs each generation are obsolesced. Technology obsolesces them. If you're a writer right now, and I'm a writer, one of the things that worries me is when will AI start to write my stuff for me? That's a worry. So if, if you think about the, the, the relentless march of technology forward, one of the things that as freelancers we need to do is understand where we're jeopardized, where we're intimidating, and to make sure that we 
continue to build the skills necessary, as well as working either with companies or with platforms or some combination to ensure that we've got opportunity uh, so that we're able to, to benefit from the technological progress that's made, not be a victim of it. But it's very important that, that people understand the half-life, if I may use that term, the half-life of their tech, whether it's in writing or any other field of, of, of endeavor, and make sure that they're moving faster than the obsolescence of that tech through, through new innovation. Hmm. Innovation can move very quickly, you know, and we're seeing that with technology and, as you say, with sort of uh, um, AI and automation and robotics. But some things don't move quickly and things like regulation and employment don't necessarily move quickly because people and populations and cultures don't necessarily change quickly. So there can sometimes be a bit of a, a jarring effect as society sort of marches on, as technology marches on, yet kind of people and societies are still expecting the status quo. So it can sometimes be quite a jarring sure. progression. Now, here's, here's where that gets interesting. Thank you for making that, because it's such an important point. So is it, what's the, what's the law in the UK currently that everybody is up in arms about? I think it's something 34 or something 35. I forgot the name of the specific bill, but right. essentially what that says is it's a lot harder to be a freelancer in the UK post-bill than it was pre-bill. Well, here's the data from that stuff. Subsequently, uh, it was made very clear that about 50% of the freelancing going on in the UK would move to Europe. So it's the, the, it, at the same time as regulation and, and law trails badly after innovation, and there's no question about that. What we also know is that people are smart and that they're taking advantage of the opportunities that do exist. And so I think what we're going to find is that laws like AB, AB in California and something 3435 in the UK don't stop the innovation. They just mislead it for a little while and then they fix it. And I think that's going to be what happens here. This is a freelancing is a is a worldwide phenomena that will not be stopped by the, the, the laws or policies of a given country. It doesn't make any sense. It's like crypto in that sense. We may be very unhappy with the doggy coin, but that doesn't mean that crypto as a whole isn't mm. adding something valuable to the world. It's the same with freelancing. And laws and regulations, they're always trailing, aren't they? They're always responding to yes. the current environment. And then the current environment and the innovators see these as obstacles or sort of a, a kind of a pathway that they need to navigate around. So it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, you, people are always going to innovate around the existing structures. Well, let me give you an example of that, very specific example. And that is three years ago, I had my first interview with, uh, Danes on freelancing in Denmark. And the message was, well, we're not really making much progress. There's one, one, one or two small companies, but uh, mostly they're offering uh, uh, job boards. There isn't anything really happening here in the area of freelancing. It, it's inconsistent with the Nordic employment mm -hmm. model. You know, take a look today and, uh, and, 
and it's extraordinary how active the freelancing community in Denmark is, how how active the freelancing community in Sweden is, how active the freelancing community is becoming in Norway. And, and so I, I have great confidence that innovators will outlast the regulators. Mm. And having said that, regulators are doing something important. They're, they're reminding us, hopefully, of what equity and fairness looks like. But when they're not, when they're trying to take a position that seems bureaucratic and bizarre, we know that uh, solopreneurs and innovators in the freelance community will find a way to make it work. Mm. So one thing we've seen, you know, in the last 18 months, of course, is is COVID. And it's had a big impact on, on many aspects of society, but not least employment, um, you know, and not least kind of how everyone interacts with each other. Remote work has been a huge benefactor or the concept of remote work and people are now sort of embracing remote work as well. They're embracing the technology that facilitates remote work, yes. uh, which is critical. You know, and I, I, I say this, but, you know, just imagine if COVID happened 30 years ago before we were paperless, before we were in the cloud. I, you know, it would have destroyed the the sort of economics of society. Absolutely. And so I suppose it's a bit of a saving grace that it happened now where people weren't necessarily embracing remote, but it was a possibility that could be uh, employed, um, you know, when needed. But how, how do you see remote playing into the freelancing, playing into outsourcing? Mm. They're all inextricably linked, aren't they? But, you know, what has COVID and remote done for your sort of freelancing perspective? Mm. I, I would add two pieces. So let me let me respond to the question directly, and then let me give you a context piece that I think might be more interesting. Um, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that it was just so propitious that, that Slack and Zoom mm. <laughs> around the same time as the pandemic. It's been extraordinary. What, what we know is, is that um, remote work can be productive. What we also know is that a full diet of remote work is frustrating for many people. And the data seems to suggest that a hybrid model of remote up to three days a week, but also two days a week together with peers is, a, is an important combination. I, I've got I've to tell you, I, I've been remote in one way or another for a great many years. Um, I'm an introvert, so for me, it's just fine. <laughs> Extroverts have a little bit more trouble with that. But I need to see people physically, even though my preference might be to see them through Zoom. The second thing that, that I, would, I would add is that we are, we are discovering now through technology, and you're absolutely right about this, all sorts of new ways to arrange work. I, I, I worked many years ago at uh, Exxon, and, and way back when, in the mid, in the, in the late 70s, we had a gas plant that in evenings was managed by one fellow remotely. It was all done through computers. It was automated entirely. The, the plant worked very well. Things didn't go badly, et cetera, et cetera, and it was just one person. So we've had quite an experience base around remote work in many, many industries. 
I think what we're finding is that the combination, as you said, of the new tools has helped enormously, just mm-hmm. absolutely enormously. I think if I were to talk more generally about this stuff, I'd say that, that decoupling place and time from, from work is, is a whole new era for us that we're going to learn so much about in the next five to 10 years. And I'll give you one small example of, of, of that. Um, there is some research at, at Stanford Engineering on what they call FAST teams. I'm sure FAST is an acronym for something, but I don't remember what it is. But essentially these teams are on a, on a sort of an agile sprint basis, working to create uh, prototypes for projects uh, on, a, on a completely sort of arm's length basis. They're doing marvelously. And so we're, we're, we're discovering more and more about the relationship between organization, team, and individual, and what it takes to be successful. And we're finding out surprisingly that there are more opportunities for success than we thought possible in a full-time kind of employment environment. So I'm very excited about what we're going to discover I would add one thing, if I can take just another minute. Mm, mm. Our research says that smart companies do six things in working with freelancers. And when they don't do these things, they run into trouble. So all of what I'm saying is, is, is based in part on the sophistication and maturity of a company working with freelancers. The first thing that a good company needs to do to, to create real readiness needs to have a clear philosophy of what kinds of freelancing it's going to support. Are, are, you, are you the kind of company that wants as little as possible because you believe in full-time employees? Are you the kind of company like an Apple that's willing to, to use freelancers to supplement their key capabilities, their key strategic capabilities? Or are you going to be a, 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 an organization like the Royal Mail in the UK where 90% of the people working the Royal Mail are now on contract? Any number of these works, but if employees don't know what the plan is, they're going to be anxious, they're going to be suspicious, and they're going to look for something else to do. So very important for management to, to be clear about its philosophy. Second, needs to be very good at performance management. If you think about the difference between an employee and a freelancer, as an employee, I reluctantly receive a performance appraisal. As a freelancer, I need performance appraisals because I need you to think well of my jobs so that I get work. So I am desperately interested in what you think about my performance. And I want you to be very clear about the measures, the milestones, and the requirements. Because if I don't understand them very clearly, I'm not going to meet them. If I don't meet them, I won't satisfy you. If I don't satisfy you, I have trouble making ends meet in the future. Third, many managers are not trained to work with freelancers. They're trained to work with employees. Mm -hmm. It's a different deal. As a freelancer, I'm a volunteer. I'm a peer, not a subordinate. You need to learn how to work with me in those terms because it's different. My wife, Carolyn, brought together 200 parents for a seniors week when our our oldest son was a, a senior in high school. She was able to manage these 200 parents who were volunteering to get this stuff done. It's a similar task for the young 
project manager in a tech organization, very important that they know how to work with freelancers in a, in a win-win kind of a way. Fourth, freelancers want to feel like they're part of the team while they're working in that organization. Whether they're remote or not, they want to feel like they're part of the action. Mm-hmm. Treat them like they're part of the action. Don't treat them with an arm's length of distance. Don't create a situation where they're not given the information that they need. They're not part of the conversations that are held that are important in terms of getting the work done. Fifth, and two more, and I'm sorry to go through this, but it's No, 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 it's valuable, valuable. Fifth, fifth is know what kind of work freelancers should be given and what they should not. Because there's some stuff which is relationship dependent or IP dependent or or you're reluctant to share that stuff because it's very secret stuff and that they shouldn't be part of that. Make sure that you're smart about giving freelancers the work that they can do well. And finally, treat them administratively with fairness and respect. And I'll give you one, one small example. And that is that I was involved in a project for a very large plastics company, worldwide, very well-known plastics company. And uh, the announcement was made that they were they were going to, in future, um, pay after 90 days post-accepted invoice. What that means is they were going to pay after 120 days. And what that meant was they, they were asking their contractors or consultants or their freelancers to essentially loan them their working capital. I quit that afternoon and they were shocked. Mm. Why are you leaving? This is a really important project for us. To which my response was, but if it's so important to you, why aren't you paying me within a reasonable period of time? Would your employees be comfortable if you paid them every 120 days? I've got to put food on the table too. So six things, clear philosophy, strong Strong, strong, strong performance management system and statement of work. Train managers to work well with freelancers. Treat them as part of the team while they're working on on the project with you. Be smart about what work you give freelancers and what you don't. And treat them administratively fairly and with respect. And you will have a tremendous experience working with freelancers. But if you don't do those things, why would any great freelancer want to work for you yeah yeah and how, how does it differ to to an employee you know is it because there needs to be if if they all sort of merge and meld together then there's very little difference in the two yeah uh you know and and or is that is that the best place to be where there's sort of a very um small discernible difference well, I, I would say that for many people, there's a, there's a small difference because they feel as though they are freelance light. Mm. <laughs> they feel as though they have the ability to take a different job if they want to or to move into freelance if they want to, or they can impact the kind of work that they get or they have sufficient variety. But for many people, it's not the case. And for those people, people that don't feel as though they have the autonomy, the agency, or or the commitment and affiliation of a a community, it it can feel like a very big difference to be a freelancer versus a full-time employee. 
John, coming back to the remote movement of late, uh, and you know, it's kind of inextricably linked to contract workers. I think, you know, and because we're we're kind of at the beginning of COVID, you know, you had your traditional employment environment, and then people went remote, as in they went back to their suburb and they continued working from their house. But that still meant that it was within the same employment environment, the same state, the same country, the same laws, same regulations. But surely it won't be too long before people realize that if we've gone remote, why do they still need to be in the same town, same suburb, same state? And then it starts piling on complexity for employers and employees in that, does that then mean you're going to have a web of contractors or employees across the globe that are all subject to different laws, jurisdictions, uh, different health insurance requirements, different salary requirements. And it just opens Pandora's box, doesn't it? And how do you think, you know, we, we spoke previously about regulation kind of struggling to keep up with evolution, but how on earth is, is the sort of world going to catch up to the fact that now you can hire people as effectively remotely you know, across the other side of the globe? Sure. It's a great question. I, uh, two comments. The first is two-thirds of the work of freelancing globally is done on behalf of organizations in the UK or the US. Hmm. So that's already happening. I mean, people, people are, are going to work in, in, in Vietnam, but the work product is going to oh, Omaha, hmm. Nebraska. That's just reality. I think that the situation is kind of akin to what we're seeing now with uh, global corporate income taxes. What, what you probably remember is that the U.S. is leading an effort to try to get all countries to have a minimum corporate tax. Something, I think it was something like 15%. There are struggles in that. Ireland, for example, which has tried very hard to attract global companies by offering a much lower tax is saying, well, no, I don't want to go with that. But yet we know on a global basis there's value in having that that tax floor. And so Mm -hmm. far, 120 countries of the 180 or so have signed on. I think we're going to experience something akin to that, that over time there'll be enough uh, concern about the lack of, of, or about the homogeneity of relationships, of laws, of regulations, that, that the world will come together and find something that does something. Will it be a perfect outcome? Absolutely not. But I, I do think that as the world turns to a common experience of freelancing, that they will, they will make it easier in each country because the countries that don't make it easier will, will lose out on, on the benefits of, of this additional career. And I think that's the key message. At the end of the day, the key message I would make is there is no question that freelancing is, has become a legitimate alternative career path. It's not an alternative legitimate career. I'm still a psychologist. I'm still a, an airline pilot. I'm still a surgeon. I'm still a technical person. I'm still an agency person but I don't ply it any longer through a a full-time employment contract. I apply that as an independent professional. 
that's the big change. The, the technology has made it possible, that competition has made it possible, and, and that uh, people have decided to embrace it. Mm-hmm. And do you see, you know, if you fast forward 10, 20, or 100 years from now, there will be a tipping point where there will be a globalized workforce as opposed to, you know, geographically constrained uh, employment environments? I think there's already a global workforce. I think that we just don't see it um, because it tends to be at a very high and fairly elite level. But I think what we will see is a global workforce continuing to move down in those areas that require professional certification and qualification. Mm. I think that'll happen more and more and more. Having said that, um, we've got a job to do in making sure that the bottom two billion have the skills to participate actively and benefit from the growth of the economy that we see. Mm. There, the, the shame of all of this, as as we sort of think about it, is that um, talent is globally distributed, but opportunity is not. We've got to do a better job of distributing global opportunity through job design, through technology, through management practice so that more people can benefit from the, the goodness that we're seeing develop through the technology and and through economic development here. Well, I think I think remote work is one of the keys to unlocking that that opportunity, isn't it? Because sure. you know, previously people were constrained with geographical location. You know, they weren't allowed. Labor was never allowed to cross borders freely. And even if you were, you know, you couldn't afford the flight or the migration. Whereas now you can pick up a job. You can be sitting in Lahore and you can pick up a job in, um, you know, in the U.S. uh, over an interface, over your your mobile phone. It's an incredible opportunity, isn't it, to to sort of introduce a global pool of talent. Exactly. 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 John, from a organizational psychologist perspective the this sort of race to remote you know and i think it was obviously a knee-jerk reaction to covid and the requirements of that but there's sort of there's no longitudinal study in terms of the efficacy of remote work and also the impact the psychological impact of people all working in isolation now if you are a 20 year old entering the professional careers now and your career is, is now going to be remote. How, how does that impact the, the sort of future workforce, do you think? Well, I would have thought when I was a kid, you learn by seeing, you learn by being a part of a culture, and you learn then by doing. And if you're all sitting at home in your own sort of silo, do you think that will have an impact on the future generations of workers? It's a very interesting question, and I'll, I'll leave you with the conundrum. Mm. The conundrum is that what you've just said obviously is true. Obviously, it makes sense for people to be around one another. It's it's a, an extraordinary opportunity to, to learn, uh, get feedback, improve, etc. Now, here's the other side of it, and that is what 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 all studies over the last two years have found is that there's not a loss in productivity because of remote that people feel lonely, people feel isolated, etc. And long-term, that's a problem, but they haven't lost productivity, and here's why. A, a recent study looked at longitudinal research around uh, productivity in the workplace, and what they found was 
that the average person was productive in the workplace for three and a half to four hours a day of an eight to nine hour day. One of the things that remote has done is it's wicked away an awful lot of that, um, what, what you might see as wasted time, what other people might see as relationship building time or mm-hmm. having lunch together time, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to find a way through that dilemma. On the one hand, we want more productivity and technology helps, but we don't want more isolation and loneliness and technology encourages that as well. So we've got to find the the, the, the golden or optimal mix of technology time together, time apart and remote in order to make the best of what we've learned over the last two years. I don't think it's remote, not remote. I think it's a combination of a number of factors that we have currently within our, within our, our book bag uh, to figure out. I think that is going to be a very important thing for people to figure out. What's that mix? Wonderful. Well, John, I think that's a, a fantastic place to leave it. And thanks so much for these these incredible insights, John. If anyone wants to reach out to you or, or learn more about what you do, how can they how can they find you? You know, please please join me on LinkedIn. I, I'm there. I write very often. I, I publish. Uh, please read my articles in Forbes, in the Harvard Business Review, and some others. And the last thing I'd say is we're a, we're we're we've just completed a survey on freelancing that was a, 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 a collaborative a collaborative project of seventy five different platforms around the world. It'll take us a few months to look at the data and uh, put together the webinar. But please join us in uh, late September, early October. There'll be lots of information on the internet about that, uh, and uh, and share with us a read of what we're finding in terms of the experiences of freelancers around the world. Brilliant. Thanks so much. And so if people do want to find you on LinkedIn, it is John Please. Younger, PhD. John John Younger, PhD. John Younger, PhD. That's right. Wonderful. Thank and we'll put that in the show notes as well, that link. Cool. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Thank you. That was John Younger, PhD. If you want to get in touch with John, uh, go to the show notes, which is outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to email us any questions, just email us at ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.